I hope you've all been enjoying the series in Acts so far, um, and I hope that you weren't kind of put off last week by the rather gruesome narrative that we got told, but that actually you kind of got hold of the really clear message of how much God loves his church, and he wants us to follow his blueprint, and he wants us to live from the inside out. Um, my old pastor used to describe the book of Acts, not as the Acts of the Apostles, as it sometimes is in people's Bibles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Um, we could certainly be learning a lot about the power of the Holy Spirit over the weeks, and today's going to be sort of no exception to that. Now, we've got a lot of narrative and text to get through because I'm not, I'm new at this, right? So I couldn't do this like sort of lopping out verses and, and chunks. Of stuff. I couldn't cope with that. So I've had to do the whole thing. I don't know whether that's because I'm, I'm new at it or whether I'm on the spectrum. So I just, it's there and I have to do it. So I have to finish it. So we're going to go through the whole passage, all the verses that I've got to do. We're doing all of them, okay? So sorry about that if you thought I was only going to pick and choose. I'm not. Um, so what we're going to do when we go through the narrative is going to be split into three sections. But we're going to ask ourselves two questions that are exactly the same questions, but mean something different each time we go through. So it's this, what comes next? So the first thing is what comes next in the narrative. So like I said, I'm going to be going through each verse <laughs> and talking about it in context and what it means then. But also there's going to be a what comes next in terms of what comes next for us. So that's the passage then. Well, what does that mean to us now? How we can, can we apply that now? Uh, this is entitled, The Apostles Heal Many. But again, my old pastor would have had an issue with that, and he would have said it's the Holy Spirit that heals many, not the apostles heal many, but that's the title that we've got. So we're going to read through this, and then we're going to unpack this. So it says, The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Now, Matt ended last week on that first verse. The apostles performed many signs and wonders, and I thought, is he going to carry on? That's my verse. But he stopped, so that was all right. But he was using it as a point to say, with what happened with Ananias and Sapphira, the church continued to follow the blueprint. The church didn't go, oh my goodness, we're not going to do anything anymore. They continued to perform the signs and wonders amongst the people. And we see that in the healings, the casting out evil spirits. We know that they've spoken in different languages, and all of that was visible to the people around them. Um, but they were also visible themselves in terms of where they were meeting. So for those of you that like to know these things, Solomon's Colonnade. I couldn't ignore that. I didn't know what that meant, so I had to go and look it up. So Solomon's colonnade was a porch on the eastern side of the temple, for those of you that like detail, and in the outer courts. So basically, they were making sure they could be seen by everybody who went to the temple. So the outer courts was where the Gentiles could go, and it's where the Jewish people had to walk through to be able to get into the inner courts. So they were making sure that everybody could see what they were doing. They weren't like they were before, huddled in an upper room, frightened to go out and do anything. They were being visible in terms of what they were doing. Now what we've got next that follows next is two kinds of confusing verses when you read them together. So I decided to get my commentaries out. I've got a wonderful dad who's been preaching for years and years. He came up for the weekend with every commentary he had on Acts. I was like, thanks, dad. Uh, and then sent me loads of stuff on uh, email as well. Uh, and none of those helped me at all in the slightest. <laughs> I was like, thanks for that, dad. Because it, there seems to be two sort of confusing verses. It says, no one else dared join them. And then it says, but more and more men and women were added. John, if you don't dare join... Oh, now you get added. Anyway, so as I was reading forward of that, trying to make sense of it, the best kind of way I got was John Stott. Bless John Stott. has gone to be with the Lord now. But absolutely amazing if you read any of his commentary stuff. He's brilliant. Um, so he kind of explained it maybe in terms of that people were scared 
of what it would look like to be associated with them, so they decided not to join in. Or it might mean that the opposition, the Jewish authorities, were scared to join in a discussion with them, so they weren't challenging them, they weren't going anywhere near them. Or it could even mean that people that knew about what happened to Anais and Sapphira were terrified to go anywhere near them and join in. But however, for some, the pull seemed to be too great. They found themselves going towards them, joining them, believing and being added to their number. They weren't bothered about the scandal of being associated with them. Now, kind of, however you choose to sort of interpret what seems to be two sort of contradictory verses, the kind of heart of it, um, as John Stott explains, I'm going to read it so I get it right. There's the presence of the living God, whether manifest through preaching or miracles or both, is alarming to some and appealing to others. Some are frightened away, whilst others are going to be drawn to faith. There's always going to be a reaction to the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, whether that be positive or negative. We see here that because of the signs and wonders that they were doing, that people were bringing their sick to be healed. Now, it talks about Peter's shadow. I thought, oh, great, I've got the verse about Peter's shadow. Marvellous. You might be reminded about the story of Jesus when the woman touched his robe, or we might be thinking ahead to later on in Acts when it talks about the handkerchiefs and the aprons of Peter being used to heal people. We need to remember that shadows and inanimate objects do not heal people. (laughs) It's the power of God that does that, okay? It says here that it hoped that some of them would be healed by his shadow falling on them. But actually later on we read that all people were healed. Well, Peter's shadow couldn't have fallen on everybody. He wasn't wasn't that much of a busy man, yeah? One commentary puts it like this. Trusting shadows is not wise. What happens if it had been cloudy or high noon so there was no shadow? We should be glad that God's power to heal is not dependent on anyone's ability to be in the right place at the right time under the right conditions. Shadows come and go, but God's power is constant. So what comes next in terms of what does that mean to us? Well, we need to expect that when we meet together and when we live for Jesus, we're going to provoke a reaction, be that negative or positive. Yeah. We need to understand that healing is still for today. Now, I come from from a background where healing's not really, you know, you kind of sort of have a little prayer and then you, and then you run away, you know. Um, and then over the years, I've changed churches and I've kind of learned a lot more about healing. And yeah, it's, it's about what the Holy Spirit does. It's not about whether I bring a certain object. It's not about whether I pray my best prayer, which was another one that my, one of my other old pastors used to say, pray your best prayer. What? I mean, is there any such thing as a not good prayer? I mean, I don't understand. It's not about that. It's not about how you pray, how long you pray for, what, what you touch the person with. It's about God's power and God's plan. And we see in that verse, it says that all were healed. And if we look at the Asia church that we're in now, it doesn't seem that everybody that we pray for gets healed, does it? Yeah? And sometimes that can be a struggle when we pray for people and that doesn't happen. But we shouldn't doubt God's power and we shouldn't doubt God's purpose or God's plan. We should still pray for healing. Yeah? The other thing that we kind of need to think about well, what comes next is there were people there obviously on the fringe, seeing them in the outer courts, being interested about the signs and wonders but not being too sure about them. We need to ask, are people that are on the fringe of things in freedom, so the people that come to the debt things, the people that we're going to be touching in Old Ahe Hospital, what the work that we do, are they looking at us and being a bit like, a bit scared to join you, a bit frightened, or are they being intrigued by what we do? Are they wanting to know more? Are they going to be added to our number? So we're going to look at Acts chapter 5, now verses 17 to 20. Uh, In this bit where we're going all the way through to 26. So it's called the Apostles Persecuted. It says, Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the parties of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and they put them in the public jail. So we see here again in this narrative 
that whenever the Holy Spirit is manifest, whether that's through preaching or miracles, there's going to be a reaction. And as we read through this passage, we're going to see that there were some pretty extreme reactions from the Sadducees and the Jewish authorities, and there were some amazing responses from the apostles. Now, the Sadducees placed great emphasis on the law, and they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So you can see that Jesus and Jesus' followers are going to pose some real big problems in terms of what they're preaching about. They're a threat to their whole belief system and their whole way of life. So when we read about their response to it, it says they were filled with jealousy. And I think that's quite an interesting choice of words there, really. Filled with jealousy. We're not sure were they jealous of the power that the apostles had to do the miracles, where they may be jealous of the attention that the apostles were getting because people were listening to them and being added. Were they jealous of the number of people that were turning to this new way of life because they weren't coming into the temple, they were going there instead. Now, if you or me get jealous, I'm pretty sure that all we do is do a lot of muttering about how we should have the thing that the other person has. And then a lot of plotting and scheming about how we might be able to get the thing that the other person has. We don't kind of go, I'm going to put them in jail. And then that way I've got nothing to be jealous about. But that's exactly what the Sadducees do. They shove them in the jail so they can rest, they can be at peace, they can't do anything else that's going to make me jealous. Now, I love the next verse. You've got that wonderful word, but, yeah? So the Sadducees are going, yes, done it. This is the second time I've locked them up. This will definitely shut them up this time. At least I can sleep easy tonight. They can't go anywhere. They can't do anything, it says, but. So they think they've got it sorted, but God's got other plans. How many times in our lives do we think we got it sorted? And God goes, but. His plans are always going to be better. It says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. He said, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. So when the angel lets them out, he lets them out for a reason. He doesn't just say, oh, well done, you know, off you go. He gives them a purpose and a command. He says, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life, as another version says. Now, you could kind of read into that, that what God is saying is that the signs and wonders are great. The fact that you meet together is great. The fact that you're selling all your land and sharing it with people and there's no need is great. But there's something else that you kind of need to be doing as well. You need to continue to tell people why you're doing the signs and wonders. Why are you meeting together? Why are you selling your land and possessions to make sure nobody is in need with you? You've got to go and actually explain and tell about this new life. So what we're going to do, we're just going to explore a little bit this kind of phrase, this new life. Um, so at this point, they're, they're not called Christians. So there's not like a name for these weird people that are doing signs and wonders and getting on the Sadducees' nerves. There's, there's not a word for them. Later on, they're called Christians. Um, in chapter 11, they're called Messiah people. Um, so they're not called Christians yet. They're not called Messiah people. Sometimes they're kind of referred to as the way, but there isn't really a description for them. Not called church yet. So it seems a strange description, this new life, but that's exactly what the apostles and the church are learning to do. They're learning to live in a wholly, totally different new way because they've been reborn of the spirit. And it's not just kind of a sort of a new way in terms of how you conduct yourself personally, although we can see that they're doing that. We can see that they're being different in the way they're sharing stuff. We can see that they're being different in the way that they've got their attitude to the temple. But it's not just about those kind of doing things, as it were. Tom Wright describes it like this. He says it was a way of life in the sense that life itself had come to life in quite a new way. A force of life had broken through the absolute barrier of death and had burst into the present world of decay and corruption as a new principle, a new possibility, a new power. And that was the life that was living inside them because that's the Holy Spirit. You know? So they had a new way, not just of doing life, but of being life itself. 
this life had to be lived, but it had to be taught as well. And that's why the angel was telling them to go and tell, to go and explain why they're doing the things they do. Now, if I'd been put in jail, and remember, this is not the first time even that they've been put in jail, and an angel had helped me escape, I'm not entirely sure I would have gone out and done the very same thing that got me put in jail in the first place. I don't think I'm as brave as that. But that's exactly, when we read it, that's what they went out and did. It says, at daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. So they didn't sort of hang around and say, well, I've had a bit of a hard night, so I was in jail, you know. I'll have a little lie-in. I'll watch my favourite TV programme. Maybe I'll go, someone to run out to Costa Coffee, get me a coffee, get me started on the day. They literally went, okay, the angel told us to go, so we're going. So at daybreak, yeah, that's quite early, everybody. I, I, I don't see daybreak. Oh, I like a lion. But they wanted to go and do exactly what God had told them to do. So they seized the first available moment to do it, and out they go. Now, I absolutely love this next bit. Because the Sadducees, they've had a good night's sleep, haven't they? They're not filled with jealousy anymore. They shoved them in jail. They're convinced that this time, because it's the second time they've done it, they'll get the message. When you work with kids, you think, come on, second time around, get the message, get the message. If you've ever met my son, it's like the 27th time around, and he still ain't got the message. But they're thinking, that's it, second time around, they'll get the message, I'll put them in jail. They're not going to be doing that anymore. So they've had a good night's sleep. Well, how wrong were they? Because they're not there, are they? Not anymore. It says, when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. Uh, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. I wouldn't like to be them guards either, would you? Standing outside, you know, you guard in an empty cell, but never mind. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. So they get there, there's nobody there, the jail is locked. So quite rightly, it says, they're kind of puzzled, they're at a loss, they're confused, yeah? Because the Sadducees haven't grasped the power of God. They haven't understood that no door, be it physical or spiritual, is ever going to stay closed if God wants it open, yeah? His people aren't going to stay imprisoned if he wants them out of prison, yeah? But they don't get that. Now, again, I'm not entirely sure that I would have wanted to be this dude. I'm presuming it's a man that comes in next and says, oh, look, the men that you put in jail, they're standing in the temple courts teaching the people. So they're doing exactly the thing that you told them not to do, that you put them in jail for for the second time round. Yeah, that's where they are, and that's what they're doing. So notice that when they come to get them, it says, at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. So they were afraid, as well, of the reaction that they were going to get from the people because the apostles were gaining favour in terms of the signs and wonders that they were doing, but also when they were teaching people about this new life. Now, the kind of fear of people and their opinions is a common theme with the Jewish authorities. We see that when they took Jesus quietly at night because they were worried about what the people would do to them and how they would be viewed. But when we look at the apostles, we see, and what they do next, that they're the exact opposite of that. They're not fearful of what people will do to them. They're not fearful of people's opinions because they know where their identity is and they know whose authority that they should respect. So what comes next for us in that particular bit of the narrative? Well, I could go on all day, but I'm not going to. Uh, it's really, for me, it was a challenge about actually how much do I tell people about this new life? People at work know I'm a Christian. They know I go to church. There's no doubt about that. They know that, yeah? But actually, do they know why I do the things that they, I do? Do they know why I foster? Do they know why I go on mission trips? 
Do they know why I give most of my money away? Do they know why? They probably just go, because you go to church. That's not the message of this new life, is it? Because I go to church. It's because I've been reborn through the Holy Spirit. Because God is changing me, transforming me, challenging me all the time about what I do. How much do I actually ever articulate that? I go, yeah, I go to church, yeah, yeah. And I put the little flyers out and maybe, maybe they might come. But how much do I actually explain why I do what I do? So now we're going to read the next bit. So 27 to 29. Now, the apostles are going to appear before the Sanhedrin, and that's basically just like a court made up of the rabbis, of the teachers, okay? Um, so it says, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, we again see this misunderstanding they've got of God's power. And hopefully you've got the right understanding by now. That God's power, the Holy Spirit within us, can transform and change people. So when it says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, the apostles don't care about the we. They don't care about the authority of the Sanhedrin. They don't care about the Jewish authorities, because we means nothing to them, because God is the highest authority to them. We also notice how they say this name. They can't even bring themselves to say Jesus' name. Yeah, That's how much they fear him. That's how much they're worried about what that name will do. Now, what they say next is a great advert for the apostles' ministry. It says that they filled Jerusalem with their teaching. So again, we talked about when we see the power of God manifest in preaching, it's always going to cause a reaction. And this has got people talking, thinking, questioning, all of which the Sadducees can't stand because that rivals their authority and their way of doing stuff. Now, the teaching that was filling with Jerusalem, we saw it in Acts chapter 2. It's got amongst its many themes the idea that actually the Jews were responsible for Jesus' death. In verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, in Peter's bold proclamation on the day of Pentecost, it says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 15, it says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. No wonder they wanted him to shut up, because they're going around basically saying, that's your fault. You're responsible for that. Yeah? They didn't want any association with that. They didn't want to be guilty of Jesus' blood. And that's why they want the apostles to stop talking about this new way of life, to stop talking about Jesus crucified. Now, the response then of the apostles is really mind-blowing in the face of all that they've experienced already in terms of persecution, and we know that there's much more to come for them, although they didn't, their response is just simply to rest themselves in whose authority their identity is in, whose power is living within them, and who's going to have the ultimate control over their lives. And they simply, but profoundly say, we must obey God rather than man. Now, before we take this verse and use it as a blanket response to never listen to our boss again in work, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't respect authority. Yeah? After all, we're told in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, to respect all human authority. John Stott talks about the fact we're called to be conscientious citizens and submit to authority. But, and I love this quote from John Stott, and I'm going to make sure I read it from there, <laughs> because if I get the words around the wrong way, it'll make no sense whatsoever. And you'll all be like, oh, yeah, really good point. What are you talking about? So I'm going to read it. John Stott says, we've got to be conscientious citizens. Yes, we've got to submit to authority. But if the authority concerned misuses its God-given power to command what he forbids or forbids what he commands, then the Christian duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God. Shall I read it through again? It says, but, and that's like the wonderful word, but again, isn't it? 
But if the authority concerned misuses its God-given power to command what he forbids or forbids what he commands, then the Christian duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God. In our days, as in days gone past, the persecuted underground church simply wouldn't exist if they had followed what the authorities had dictated to them about what they should and shouldn't do. There'd be no Bible smuggled in, there'd be no churches planted, there'd be no ministries, there'd be no evangelism, and it would be none added to the number of the church, both then and now, if they followed the laws and those in authorities' dictates about Christianity when they're directly opposed to Christianity. They've already annoyed them by basically going over again the fact that they're responsible for Jesus' death. And then, I love this bit, they told them basically, you know, get lost, I ain't listening to you, the authority, the ultimate authority is God. And then they launch into a mini-preach. Right there and then, the thing that got shoved them in jail twice and the thing that they definitely, definitely shouldn't have done, there they are, doing it again. They've gone up, we've got a stage, we've got people listening to us. The angel told us to tell all people the message of this new life. And all people meant the Jewish authorities. It didn't mean ignoring them. It meant giving them the opportunity to hear what God had to say. So there they go, launching into their mini-preach. It says, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. So, they teach the gospel in a nutshell here. You know, if you need a little bit of help, maybe, teaching the gospel, this, this is quite good. Um... They preach the good news that we have, and I think, again, the series in Acts has been brilliant at kind of reminding us of the power of the gospel, of actually what the gospel can do when we explain it to people, because the Holy Spirit will use that. So they preach that Jesus was raised from the dead. They preach who Jesus is, that he was prince and saviour, and now he is exalted to the right hand of God. They preach what Jesus crucified and raised again means, that forgiveness can be known. They preach about the gift of the Holy Spirit, who's a witness to all these things and lives inside those who believe. So the gospel, in a nutshell. Then, as you would expect, the Sanhedrin go mad. They flip their lids. It says they were furious. Now, again, saying the same point over and over again, but there's a reason for that. The power of God manifesting preaching and miracles is always going to get a response, yeah? So the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been jealous. They've been puzzled. They've been fearful. And now they are just downright fuming. Yeah? This time they don't want jail. Jail is no longer an option. Game over. It's death. Yeah? Because they've already seen that they can get out of the jail. So that's it. Let's see what they can get out of death. Yeah? Now, when we read on to the next passage, Gamaliel, this is dude called Gamaliel. He's coming up next. And he gets to say what he says. Now, it's no coincidence that he's there. And it's no coincidence that he gets to say what he gets to say. Because God is in control and God has got a plan and a purpose. Gamaliel was just the right man to say what he did. He was popular from both sides, from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was listened to by both groups. So he was able to be heard when emotions were running high, when people aren't able to think straight. God made it so that he was there, so people would listen to what he had to say. And this is what he's got to say. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, that's what we're going to call him, a teacher of the law who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theadus appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. So obviously the key verse in this one is, but if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. In the message, it puts it like this. If this program or work is merely human, it will fall apart. But if it's of God, there is nothing you can do about it. And you better not be found fighting against God. We can't stop God's plans or purposes. Doors will open if he wants them to. They'll stay shut if he wants them to. We see that from the growth of the church from then on in and still to this day that nothing will stop God's plan. His plan was for the church and the church is still here despite lots of things that are going to be put in the way. Yeah. The apostles then, bless them, are flogged to add to the list of all the things that's happening to them. And then we get another strange verse, unless by now hopefully you picked up the idea that God's power within us can change us and empower us and make us different people. They say that they have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name and they go out rejoicing. Okay? And that's not because they're sadists and they like the pain, they like the good flogging. It wasn't because they wanted the attention, you know, so they can go away and tell that story a million times to everybody that they meet and get like get a drink of water maybe, you know, pat on the back so they feel sorry for them. It's not that, you know. It's because of the name. They did it for the name. They did it because of Jesus, because they were doing what they were asked to do. They were rejoicing because of that. Perhaps maybe they were thinking about when they sat with Jesus on the mountainside and heard what we now call the Beatitudes, and he'd said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Maybe the penny was dropping with that and they realised, okay, actually blessed because we're suffering for the name because we're doing what is right yeah they knew that what happened to them wasn't because they did anything wrong it was because they did what was right and they followed God and they proclaimed the message of this new life so this knowledge that they're following God's authority and doing what he asked them to do means that nothing can stop them let me just go back to that one here but it says day after day in the temple courts and from house to house they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah they are back again in those temple courts. They are back where they are being kicked out of, where they've been put into jail twice. And not only that, they've now decided to go door to door. So just in case you weren't able to get into the outer courts, they're going to knock on your doors and they're going to come and tell you the message of this new life. They have not been stopped. You think they would have been by all the things that they've been through, but they're not because they recognise whose authority that they're working under and they know that God's plans can't be stopped. So what comes next for us? So what does this narrative mean for us? So for me, again, it was a really, uh, really challenging passage, actually. You kind of, you read something and you go, oh, it's Acts, it's great, it's stories, I like stories. And then God goes, boom, but there's a meaning in that. And I go, all right, okay, I'll have a little look at that. A real, real challenge for how we live for Jesus. How do we respond to authority? Be that God's or man's authority. And for me, it was a real kind of challenge to question my priorities, my decision-making and my plans. Are they from God? So that means they're going to be unstoppable. Or are they kind of of my own making, my own agenda, the thing that I want to push forward? You know, and how do I seek the wisdom to know the difference? Yeah? It also challenged me, and Kathy's not here today, but I told her I was going to be talking about this. Um, it challenged me to, how do we support actually our brothers and sisters who, for the reality, 
today is the exact same thing that happened to the apostles, that they live with that type of persecution as a daily occurrence, that they can't go and proclaim, that they can't knock from door to door. And if they do, and lots of them do, even though the authorities say they can't, then they end up, don't know, in jail or they end up in prison. Um, so I wanted to just read to you from a little tiny book that I got here that my friend Kathy gave me. It's a little devotional. Uh, may I recommend, if you see Kathy, say, Kathy, how do I get one of these? Because it's been absolutely brilliant. So it's uh, something for every day, and it's about the persecuted church. And it's been really good at reminding me of what my brothers and sisters go through on a daily basis. And maybe I kick up the backside about what I don't do. <laughs> on a daily basis. Um, so I'm just going to read a little bit from that. And it talks about the church in North Korea. And it has like a little read, like a little Bible verse, and then it has a reflect and a response. So I'm just going to read from the reflect. And it says, a North Korean believer was arrested when the police found a Bible in his home. I've got about 30 Bibles in my house. Like, it's not a problem, is it? And you can take your Bible on the train. You can take your Bible on the plane. You can do whatever you want with your Bible. Yeah, not a problem. But he's found with the Bible, and he gets arrested. A Christian friend said, I've known this man for a long time. When he came to faith, he made a decision that one day he would die for Christ. Every Christian in North Korea has made that choice. My friend knew that one day he could get caught, and on that day he had to be steadfast in the faith and loyal to Jesus. I am convinced he can take the suffering because he constantly reminds himself of the joy that is set before him. So just like the apostles... They made the choice that they were going to continue to proclaim this new life. They knew they were going to get persecuted. They knew there was going to be hard times. And for our brothers and sisters around the world, that's a real reality, that they made that decision. And the decision to live for Christ is also to die for Christ for them, yeah, physically to die for Christ. So now I've all depressed you all. Uh, kind of how can we respond to that? So Rachel's going, oh, what can we do about persecuted brothers and sisters? But we can respond practically. We can give, we can pray, we can write, we can go. But from my point of view, what I was more challenged about is actually I can change my attitude and embolden myself to respond here in our country where at the moment we are still free to take our Bibles wherever we go, to read a Bible story in assembly to our children and say a prayer and call them Heavenly Father because that's what I do. Yeah? How can we use the freedom that we've got, that we haven't got somebody saying you can't preach, you can't teach about this new life? How do we use that freedom? That for me was like a real challenge. Um, so there is a lot to think about, but what we can rest in is that God's power is within us so that we can continue to tell people the message of this new life. We can do it with words and we can do it with actions. And when we do this, we can and we will see God's church continue to grow in spite of persecution. And in fact, when I wrote that down, I was like, actually, a better choice of words would be because of persecution, wouldn't it? Not in spite of persecution. Um, Tortillian, who was an early Christian author, he writes this, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of the Christians. Now, the seed of the early church, which grew and grew, was literally through sacrifice, was literally through death, yeah? And the church is still growing in that way in lots of other countries. And in this country, maybe it's not so much about literally our lives being sacrificed, but it is that dying to ourselves, isn't it? It is about living for God. It's about living that new way. Now, we get to be a part of God's plan for his church, that his church will continue to grow here in Liverpool and beyond. <coughs> And we should be filled with joy and hope and confidence that because it is of God, because it is his plan, it will not fail because he never fails.